Let's turn to John 1. We're looking at the whole subject this morning of full-spectrum discipleship. It's part of the vision work that I had shared in a body life update in the fall, worked upon and is still working upon with elders and deacons through these months subsequent. And now we are expounding these in a series on Sunday mornings, aren't we? So we kicked it off last week by looking at the master plan of discipleship, and I want us to be able to understand we're dealing with the full spectrum of discipleship where people are at all walks of life on the spectrum of maybe being very atheistic in their view of the realities of God on one hand, to those who are intensely, incredibly sanctified and have become more and more Christ-like with each passing day on the other hand and everybody in between. And so with that in mind, we're looking today at the beginnings of discipleship and picking up in verse 35, I'd like to read through verse 42 as our springboard. That the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So we're going to be looking at these verses in more. First of all, we're going to look to Jesus. My Father, as we're coming before you now, I want to pray again for each and every one in this service, and also for the men that are away this weekend on the men's retreat, that there will be a great movement of the Holy Spirit here and there. And Father, we realize that sometimes our boats out on the sea of life get rocked by storm, and then Jesus comes out walking on water. one who seems to have the capacity to rise above the storm. And so I pray, Father, that that imagery ministers to hearts even at this moment and the needs that are here. Praying that in all these services, those that perhaps on the full spectrum of things have not crossed that threshold yet will find that they are encountering the risen Savior in these verses and put their faith and trust in Jesus. And for those of us who love him and are living for him and have trusted in him as Savior and Lord, I pray we will see our purpose for living in these verses and seek to apply this truth to our lives. So, Father, we're praying again now that you would warm these hearts, 
that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus, him only. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the story that Joe Aldrich shares in his book on evangelism of a legend that recounts the return of Jesus to heaven. We bore the marks of his earthly pilgrimage, the marks from the cross itself. And the angel Gabriel approaches him and says, Master, you must have suffered terribly for people down there. I did, he said. And continued, Gabriel, they do not know all about how you love them and what you did for them, right? Oh, no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know. And Gabriel's perplexed. Then what have you done, he asked, to let everyone know about your love for them? And Jesus said, I've asked Peter and James and John and a few more friends to tell others about me. And those who are told will in turn tell still other people about me, and my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. And ultimately all of mankind will have heard about my life and what I have done. And Gabriel frowned. And looked rather skeptical, and he knew well what poor stuff people were made of. Yes, he said, but what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? What if way down in some future century, people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus answered, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. When I look back over that story, what immediately comes to mind is the description of activities unfolding in this first chapter of the Gospel of John. Because here what you and I find is a very powerful descriptive of the way in which Jesus Christ goes about working with people who very frankly are across the full spectrum of their attitudes, their understandings, and their relationship with their maker. And as we are beginning to work this whole idea of what we're calling this morning full-spectrum discipleship, what I'm going to do with you now with this passage is to simply draw out two significant recommendations for you and for me who want to live high, purposeful lives as to how to go about engaging ourselves in full-spectrum discipleship for the glory and for the honor of God. The first recommendation comes out of verse 35 through 42, and we're going to have to flesh it out together. We'll put it like this, number one, as the discipleship process unfolds. Embrace small beginnings. 
patiently focusing attention upon Christ. The initial group that Jesus Christ used to impact the world with the gospel was a small beginning. And very frankly, a very small group. And likewise, you and I traffic most of the time in our daily experiences in smaller group dynamics at work, in family, in neighborhoods. Now, what we find here is that Jesus Christ is going to begin his ministry in light of what I'll call a very macro form of ministry, where John the Baptist, highly public in his impact upon people, the masses are coming together. God does not emphasize the macro to the exclusion of the micro. And God does not emphasize the micro to the exclusion of the macro. But he allows them to work in tandem. And now out of this mass appeal that John the Baptist is having upon the wider population will be the beginnings of a small group of disciples who will impact this world for God's glory. In verse 35, you and I are informed that it's the next day. And if I'm doing my studies correctly, with the Jewish calendar in front of me, this would have been Sabbath. And the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. What I want you to see in terms of a background is that while John had a macro ministry to the crowds, he also used a micro ministry with his disciples. We need a both and, not an either or. And he understood his purpose for life. Do you? Have you ever asked yourself the question, if you're a believer, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, why didn't God just simply take me to heaven? Why did he leave me here then? I believe the answer is to multiply disciples for his glory. Otherwise, there would be no witness of Christ's work. John the Baptist clearly understood who he was, and he understood his purpose for living. Do you? For example, in verse 19, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? How would you answer that? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? Which I think is one of the big questions of humanity today. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, you have to, and I have to be able to answer similar type questions when we, in our more introspective moments. Why am I here? Don't you love his response in verse 23? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And already we have the usage of the word, the way long before Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Have you spotted that and connected that, in fact, to John chapter 14, verse 6? 
So now here is John, who already grasped the significance of the singularity of Jesus Christ being the exclusive way. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, which we will quickly recognize to be the Apostle John and Andrew. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, we just sang during the offertory, Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed, the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. And what we see here now is that John the Baptist is not drawing attention to himself. He is drawing attention to Jesus Christ, but he is linking scriptures to Christ. He understands the context. He's dealing with religiosity in this kind of setting. People had a familiarity with the Jewish sacrificial system, where in Exodus chapter 12, the lamb was slain and the blood was placed upon the doorpost so that the wrath of God might might pass over, you see, those that who put faith and trust in what that lamb signified, in whom that lamb signified the ultimate Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John has previously stated that, and he's using repetition to get his disciples' attention. And so should we. Because in chapter 29, excuse me, verse 29 of the prior day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice it does not say the sins of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he's talking about the fallenness of humanity rooted in the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, that we've inherited when we enter this world physically alive but spiritually dead. And so he looks at Jesus, he walks by, and he now for a second time, because he's got to get their attention, says, Behold the Lamb of God. There was a time when Charles Spurgeon, in an early afternoon, was testing the acoustics in a, a large facility that he would be speaking in that night, and thinking that there was no one there listening to test the acoustics. Standing on the platform, he he shouted out, lar- large voice, "Behold, the Lamb of God." who taketh away the sin of the world. He found out later there was a workman in the high gallery that heard that voice. Found his mind, his mind taking him back to his childhood where he had heard the story of John the Baptist, speaking of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, found his heart skipping a beat because he was so far removed on the spiritual spectrum of things. He went home, opened that Bible that he had not cracked for a long time, and then put his faith and trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You never know who's listening to you. 
even when you're just testing things, and even when you think you are simply alone and you're processing, whether it be visually or verbally or a combination thereof, there are people that are going to find themselves on the spectrum of spirituality confronted with where you are at on that spectrum, and by God's grace are moved along towards the point where they become disciples, but also multipliers of disciples for God's glory. And so now, here is John the Baptist, and he points toward Christ. He points away from self, and mock this, he points. He does not push. He points. He does not push. And he blends the public and the private ministries of his life. And he blends the large-scale involvements of his life with the small circles of his life and allows the dynamic to feed itself to such a degree that the two disciples in verse 37 heard him say this, And they followed Jesus. And that is your purpose for living right there. So in your more reflective moments where you're asking, and why am I still here? Why didn't I just simply not go to be with the Lord after I became born again? The answer is you are here because by God's grace you are called to be a multiplier where you take people that are on the negative side of that spiritual spectrum, that do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and by God's grace, you move them along verbally and visually, word and example, to the point where faith is placed in Christ, and they move forward to the point where they want to reach people who are on that opposite side of the spectrum, and likewise, until we have this movement. So that when a Gabriel looks at our Lord and says, Peter, James, and John, you know, humanity's not made of, of strong stuff, you know. And then our Lord would say, in essence, that's my plan. I have no other. And you're his plan. And he has no other. So now he's given you a purpose for living. And just as John had embraced his purpose, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, you and I, verbally and visually, are trying to lay out systematically but biblically the whole concept of the way of the Lord. In verse 38, what we find now is that if you have embraced the purpose of life, then you move from the purpose of life to the probing questions of life, 38-39. Jesus turned, saw them following, and said to them, What are you seeking? Now notice he didn't ask the question, Who are you seeking? He, in essence, has opened up a blank check for them to examine. And they can write it as they please. But what I find interesting here is that the first words recorded of Jesus in the fourth gospel is a question. 
And it's a question that all of humanity on the spectrum of life have got to grapple with, you and I as well. What are you seeking? Occupationally, family-wise, health-wise, and so forth. And how does that relate to Jesus? Now, what we want to do is to get people to begin to grasp and grapple with this whole question of what am I truly seeking and is that worth seeking? Because that's the bigger question that has to be answered, isn't it? Notice the crucial, critical questions that Jesus poses. That's why our summer series of last year dealt with critical questions. The brilliant use of questions in the disciple-making process. Jesus turns. He saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Notice the reaction. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? In other words, they've got a whole lot of stuff that they need to talk through with Jesus. And they're not going to impulsively then try to answer that question that's so profound. The searching. The searching heart. Now you and I are going to find that what Jesus does here is give them the opportunity to work through this whole process of what it is they are seeking. Jesus did not start with a dramatic statement. He started with a critical question. What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? In other words, they need to spend some time digesting who he is. And he said to them, come, and you will see. And I'm struck with the phrasing here and the verbs, aren't you? So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. And then I've marked this. It was about the 10th hour. And on the Roman system at that point, that would mean 10 o'clock in the morning, which means now we've got a day's work of heavy dialogue and instruction unfolding in a very relational, natural context. And so what Jesus is doing at this point is investing in them, giving of them, processing with them, but using the critical question to get their attention. And likewise, when you and I are engaged, involved, because God has left us here in full-spectrum discipleship, we utilize the brilliant questions posed in the Scriptures as a paradigm to get people to rethink what it is that they're seeking. What is it that I am looking for in life? And sometimes they don't even know they're looking. John Wesley had always considered himself a believer until the day his ship became the object of a storm. Biographer tells us fear took hold of his heart. And he noticed that the only people on board who were not stricken with fear, were a small band of Moravian missionaries. When the storm was over, he asked one of them, weren't you afraid? Afraid, said the man. Why should I be afraid? 
I know Christ. And then, gazing upon Wesley with what someone has called a disconcerting frankness, Moravian asked, Do you know Christ? And the biographer informs us that for the first time in his life, John Wesley realized that he did not, and that he was living on quote, a second-hand religion that will not do in the storms of life, unquote. Now, what you and I need to do is to pose critical questions. Because there are a lot of people in our extended circles who are simply living off a second-hand religion that's simply not cutting it in the storms of life. And then they're wondering why they can't do RIP. Rest in peace in the midst of the storms. If you're committed to full-spectrum discipleship, as we all should be, then one of the crucial questions along the way then is to begin to ask questions along the lines of, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? In other words, bottom line, what do you value? Because what you value will determine what it is you're seeking. And if what they value does not cut it in the storms of life, then you're able to wisely, in the spectrum of things, begin to offer an alternative, a ship that can withstand the storm a ship known as your Savior. It's about the tenth hour. Now in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. What I'm going to want you to do somewhere in your studies in the coming days is to track Andrew in the Gospels and see how this encounter where this encounter takes him. Because you're going to find, for example, in John chapter 6, that in the feeding of the 5,000, there's Andrew who's grappling with the question, how do you feed so many people with five loaves of bread and two fish? In other words, how do you take such a small beginning and have a macro effect. Ah. Could it very well be that what Jesus will do with that small beginning with the five loaves and the two fish is to illustrate physically what he intends to do spiritually through small beginnings and the multiplying effect that occurs and reaching countless people for Jesus. And there's Andrew. And Andrew is face-to-face, one-on-one with Jesus. And he's known as Simon Peter's brother. There's always that qualifier, isn't it? But here's what's interesting. Look at verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon. This is the beginning of next stage discipleship already. 
John the Baptist's disciples, Andrew. Andrew then spots Simon Peter. People get caught up in personality profiles and evaluations, and they're all about Simon Peter. But do you realize that Jesus started with Andrew, not with Peter? And that Andrew found Peter? It's not Peter who found Andrew? There's a strength, a quiet strength. Tony Dungy's written a book on that. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So he brought him to Jesus. In other words, he understands his purpose for life. Now, the purposeful life is drawn out of verse 35 to 37 which yields a probing question about life in verse 38 and 39, what are you seeking? Which leads us then to our personal connections in life in verse 40 through 42. Notice where he begins. He begins with what would be natural for him. He begins by seeking out Simon. Now likewise, what you and I do once we've established very firmly our purpose in life, A purposeful life then leads to the probing questions about life. What are you seeking to those in our circles? Which then leads to the personal connections that we need to invest in in order to lead people across the spectrum of spirituality. Andrew, not Peter. Andrew is the one who is the igniter here. But already John the Baptist impacts Andrew. Andrew impacts Simon. Simon is brought to him. We think of the rugged individual of Simon, but the reality is that Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And now we begin to see the ripple effect of discipleship. Christiana Tsai, the daughter of a Chinese governor. Stories told of bringing her brother to Jesus. But it was a dangerous idea at first. The biographer tells that she was raised in a Buddhist home, attended a mission school to take advantage of the excellent education it offered. But she vowed that she would never become a believer, and she deeply resented religious services that she was required to attend. Quote, this only increased my resistance, unquote. What Christianity want, Christiana wanted most from her education was to perfect her skills in the English language so she could quench her insatiable thirst for knowledge. But to do that, she joined an optional English Bible study. By your own testimony, God used my love for English to draw me to himself. And it was through reading scripture she was converted. And that created anger among family members. And one of her brothers tore up her Bible. And her mother grieved openly about her denial of ancestral worship. But here's the rest of the story. Eventually, Christiana's testimony and changed life began to have an impact upon the circles of her relationships. And one by one, they came to Jesus. 
in the family and outside of the family. So she says, The brother who tore up my Bible and persecuted me in the early days at last confessed my Lord. In all, 55 of my relatives, adults and children, have become God's children, expressed their faith in Jesus, not to mention those outside of my family. I have never been to college, nor theological seminary. I am not a Bible teacher. I have only been, quote, God's hunting dog, unquote. You know something? She understands her purpose. And when you're going through difficult times, you know what carries you through difficult times? Understanding your purpose. Now, the purpose of living then triggers probing questions about living, which then stimulates your personal connections when it comes to living. And all of that now is encased in this first significant recommendation. Embrace small beginnings. Patiently focusing attention upon Christ. Not pitting the macro against the micro, but like John the Baptist, who could speak to the multitudes and yet invest in individuals, so likewise are we called to do similar. Now, here's your second recommendation from God's word. That secondly, as the disciple process unfolds, address skeptical attitudes wisely answering questions about Christ. Now, in verse 43, the next day, you see how he keeps working with the days? The next day, now we're up to Sunday, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. Do you notice the various ways in which God is orchestrating relationships? John the Baptist pointed Andrew and the apostle John to Jesus. Andrew was the one that brought Peter to Jesus. Now, Jesus directly connects with Philip. And if you look carefully here, he found Philip. And what I would love for you to do in the coming days is now connect Philip and Andrew in your studies of the Gospels. And notice in particular how in the feeding of the multitude in John chapter 6, Philip, as well as Andrew, had to wrestle with the question, how do you feed so many with so little? And consider again how God uses the micro to impact the macro. And now you and I are informed that what God says here, follow me. The second member of the Trinity says in a command, follow me. Succinct. Nothing more. But here's what gets my attention now. Philip was from Bethsaida. That's right next to Capernaum, where Jesus will turn water into wine, a visual display of of his glory. But furthermore, he's from the city of Andrew and Peter. In other words, what Jesus has now done is that he has already recognized the relational bonds that exist between Andrew, Peter, and Philip, as willing to work with the relational bonds that were previously established. 
prior to this encounter. Now, likewise, people at work, people in your neighborhoods, there are pre-established relational bonds. And it's tremendously important for us to wisely discern the nature of those bonds, who's related to who, who's connected to who, who is friends with whom, because there is a ripple effect. And people tend to impact others, and what they share typically are shared values. And once somebody's values have been shifted, those within the relational connected bonds will notice the change of values and then wonder, why are they no longer seeking, searching what it is that I'm seeking and searching? And now the probing questions kick in. And you and I have the opportunity of working the full-spectrum discipleship strategy that's unfolding here in the methodology of Jesus Christ. And so, Philip in turn follows, finds Nathaniel. And he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Which means then that Philip was obviously a student of the scriptures, to be able to say that. But what I want you to spot here in the second significant recommendation, these two have to be tied together, is that this is the first pushback you and I are going to spot in the whole discipleship process. And if you are sharing the gospel, and if you are trying to lead people across the spectrum of spirituality, expects pushback, intellectually, emotional, volitional, and so on. It's going to happen. The question is, from whom and why is the bigger question. Nathaniel, in verse 46, most likely a disciple of John the Baptist, but certainly not yet a disciple of Jesus, said to him, question, can anything good come out of Nazareth. Notice how cynical he is. Notice how negative he is. Notice how critical he is. But spot the fact that this is not a statement. It is a question. And you can work with a question. What are the questions that people are asking in the circle of relationships you're exposed to at work, neighborhoods, and elsewhere. Write them down and use them as connecting points on the spectrum of discipleship. How do you respond if this is going to be an intellectual give and take requiring apologetics? Well, Philip must have a handle on Nathaniel. Notice his response. Come and see. He's not going to enter into an argument. In other words, what he's doing is empowering Nathaniel to intellectually, emotionally, spiritually evaluate this on his own. So this isn't some second-hand gospel. He's going to have to come to his own convictions regarding who Jesus is as is the case of so many in our circle of relationships. Come and see. Sometimes that's all you can say initially. I find what's coming next our way fascinating, don't you? In verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. Jesus has a way of being very directional and personal. Coming toward him. 
In other words, this has been a sovereign setup. Watch out for sovereign setups. Where God brings one person along to prepare the next one to come along. Once the question has been raised, now the answer is about to be delivered. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And you say, Gary, where's that coming from? Why on earth would Jesus say that? Now, bear in mind, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, not an Israelite indeed in whom there is no sin. But why would Jesus say this? It's very possible now that Nathanael has been meditating upon the story of Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Jacob deceiving his father. Taking the blessing and running with it. And so now Nathanael feels as though his private life's been exposed. Nathaniel said to him in verse 48, how do you know me? In other words, how did, I, how did you get into my, my, my mind, my thoughts? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, if you were to do any study in Judaism, what you would find is that the fig tree was recognized in Judaism as the place for meditation. It was the place where rabbis would sit down with Torah, open up the Hebrew Bible, and talk about Messiah. Rabbi Akma studied the law there. Later, Augustine himself studied under a fig tree when he spoke of his conversion in his Confessions of Augustine. How do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, in other words, you were involved in your scholarly meditations, reflecting upon Torah, I saw you, and then Nathaniel feels exposed and answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Now, what's fascinating is that this has happened right after the baptism in which there was this cry from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. John the Baptist discipling Nathaniel. Nathaniel meditating upon God's word. Jesus approaching. Nathaniel coming to the conviction, this is the Son of God. And if you go to the end of John chapter 20, you will find that that is the purpose likewise for John's gospel tract, that people would realize and believe that this is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see how it all fits together? You are the king of Israel. And if you deal with the beginning and the ending of this gospel tract, you will find that as Jesus was about to be crucified, the question was, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you? And it's singular in the Greek. You will see greater things than these. And then astoundingly in verse 51, He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you, and now it's plural. In other words, he's talking about you and me. You'll see heaven opened, 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And it's as if he's saying, I know what you are reading. You are reading Genesis chapter 28. You are reading about Jacob's ladder. You saw angels ascending, descending. And I want you to know, I am the ladder. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And notice now what he has done with all of this. He's taken this man right where he's at in his thought processes and led him to the Messiah, Jesus. And this is full-spectrum discipleship. Descending on the Son of Man. What if Peter, James, and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? What if in subsequent centuries people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus answered, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them and family. This is our purpose. And this is why you live. Let's stand together. And so, Father, I'm praying now that we can embrace what's here. Realize that in our more private settings, we're dealing with smaller numbers of people that we traffic with through life, journey with through life. But we are to have a multiplying effect, an expansive effect. We are to see the full spectrum, not get fixated on a singular point of the spectrum. And to see that there's to be a trajectory, there's to be a forward movement where we're influencing people to consider Jesus who in turn become committed disciples and influence others to consider Jesus until there is such a multiplying effect occurring that we look back and say, it seems so simple, it seemed yet so complex, but I have a sovereign God who's over all. So thank you for my purpose for living. And equip me now to impact the relationships you've given me and beyond for your glory. In Jesus' name. God bless you.